Hello everyone, my name's Ed Kemp and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast series, a podcast series providing insights to help professional athletes transition to life after sport. In this episode we feature former AFL footballer and Essendon Football Club Premiership player Sean Wellman. Sean began his career in the AFL with the Adelaide Crows in 1994 where he played 34 games and kicked nine goals in two seasons before moving to Essendon where his career really blossomed. Strong, assured and resolute, Sean developed into one of the best and most consistent defenders in the competition. In 1998, he ran second in Essendon's Best and Fairest Award and he enjoyed another excellent season two years later when he was a key contributor to the club's premiership win. A two-time All-Australian, Sean retired at the relatively young age of 29, took a year off and then embarked on a coaching career. Since finishing coaching in 2013, he has moved into the finance industry and started his own business, Wellman Finance. Sean also joined the Essendon board in 2017, continuing a long association with AFL Football and the Essendon Football Club. I started by asking Sean to describe how he felt when he retired and did the serious back injuries he endured during his career have an impact on preparing for life after sport. So I sort of decided to retire in 2004, probably halfway through the year. Um, So I had had a bit of time to get my head around it. Uh, I don't think anything really prepares you for the for the moment that you retire, but I was fairly ready in my own mind. Um, but it sort of hits you the, the next year when they start playing games. You sort of think, well, I'm not. I'd usually be running out there at round one, and that's when it hits you a little bit, and you do miss that. Uh, I guess you miss that feeling of playing, but you don't miss training. That's that's for sure. So it sort of took me 12 months to sort of get my head around that. You know, football wasn't a regular part of my life. And for that 12 months, I really sort of sat back and, and looked at what I wanted to do away from footy. The back injury, yeah, well, I got drafted by the Crows when I was 17 and uh, I hurt my back and I effectively missed about 18 months of footy where I didn't play or train. So the reality for me was that I might not have a football career. So that sort of sharpened my focus. My, my mother always used to say, before I got injured that make sure you go and get a university degree in education because footy's not going to be forever and you might not make it and uh, you might get injured and that, be, that it became a reality a little bit sooner than what I thought you know when I was 17 or 18 so I studied and, and did a podiatry degree while I was playing footy in Adelaide and uh, yeah I always sort of had a had a plan B if you like. And that sort of plan B is not really the norm is it? I mean most of the players that I've come across have been very focused on the here and now. And I think that's one of the challenges that all professional sports people face is the fact that they're really worried about performing the next week, the next month, the next year, as opposed to thinking longer term. So that back injury must have actually been a bit of a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I, di- I didn't think of it at the time because it did set my footy back you know, a few years. But to have that reality when you're young was probably a good thing, a bit of a shake-up to say, OK, you need to have other things um, because... Maybe this won't uh, this won't work out the, the footy career. A little bit different now. A lot, lot more difficult to squeeze a career in, obviously, and playing because it's such a professional game. But when I started, it was probably semi-professional at best. And uh, but I remember we had a lot of guys studying. Some guys worked full time because training sort of started at five o'clock. I remember Matthew Liptak. He was studying medicine. Uh, and that's something that you wouldn't be able to do now. But then it changed really quickly to the, got to the late 90s and you know, having a, a career and a football career was just impossible. But it was always important 
I thought to have that balance and, and get your mind off footy and, and, and do something regardless of you know what how your footy was going or what you were getting paid. And do you think that that focus of things outside footy actually helped you be a better footballer? No doubt. For me, it did. I always, when I played football, I always worked. So I studied and then I, I worked in podiatry practices. And even when I say work, it wasn't, I might be doing 12 or 14 hours a week, you know, three hours a day. But I can tell you during that time, you weren't thinking about footy. And you're also talking to other people because at one-on-one in podiatry, you were asking people about their life, what they did. So you got a bit of a different perspective. So that was, I found that really beneficial. I mean, footy's the, the best career in the world, particularly when you're winning every week and you're playing well. But the reality is you don't win every week. Even if you've got a good team, you probably win seven out of 10. And even if you're a superstar player, you probably play well seven times out of 10. I certainly wasn't that. So you work out the numbers and, you know, probably every second week you're either, either losing or not playing well. So, and I, I found that some players would, you could almost look at them and see how their how their footy career was going because they just wear it, you know. But I think the the people that had a bit more of a balance, the guys that I played with, I th- I certainly thought it was it was beneficial to their to their footy. And you mentioned earlier about the fact that nowadays it's really really difficult for an AFL footballer to have a career or start to nurture a career outside of the game purely because of the the fact that it's full-time professional. As I understand it, players are basically spending 14 hours a week at the club, which just seems amazing. I mean, in in your role as a former coach and in your role now as a director of a football club, I mean, do you worry that that footballers are going to become very, very one-dimensional and not actually have or lead what I'd call a, a normal sort of balanced life where there are things outside of football that they can sort of get their teeth into? Uh, I think not, not, not in that sense because I think the way the game's going and the professionalism, I think you have to dedicate a lot of time to footy and, uh, you know, they do certainly spend a lot more hours at the footy club. But what I am big on is encouraging them, even whatever they're doing, that they're doing something else away from football. So it's not 100% football. So there's always time to do a bit of study. They get, you know, a day, day and a half off a week where you can go and sit in with someone else's business or learn something, have a mentor uh, where you can uh, get away from the footy club but also sit down and think about your next career and, and use the resources around around the footy club. So I'd certainly encourage any player to do that. And I'm, I'm, I mean, personally, I'm not a big fan. I know football clubs went down the path of bringing in-house education, you know, but I think it's a good thing to actually step away and go to a university or, and go and meet some other people similar age and get another perspective on what other people similar age are doing doing with their lives as well. And I think that perspective thing is really interesting because AFL football now, as I understand it, is a complete bubble. I mean, these players are scrutinised on and off the field like they've never had before. So I could imagine that it actually would be a really healthy thing to go and sit down with people that aren't involved in that bubble and, and get a different view on life. You mentioned mentoring and and mentors and no doubt you've had mentors over the course of your life what are the types of people within the broader group of a football of an AFL football club in your experience could players turn to I'm assuming outside of staff coaches development people and just general people that work in the football club there's obviously coterie groups there's directors do you think enough players are sort of tapping into that the intellectual property of those sorts of groups to just help better themselves and actually get an understanding of what they may or may not want to do when they finish? Yeah, it's a good question. I think some do. Um, personally, I, I didn't enough. I, I certainly 
would speak to those people and access them. But when I look back, did I did I use that resource and that expertise enough? There's no way. I had a few teammates that did it really well. I mean, the reality is in football that you've you've sort of got the blinkers and the winkers on in some regards. You're just so focused on training and getting yourself right for the weekend and everything revolves around your footy. I mean, in terms of what time you go to bed, what you eat, you do get pretty focused and you can become a little bit too insular. There's no doubt about that. So, but I, I mean, I remember I had a couple of teams. I mean, Andrew Welsh is a good example. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me mentioning him here is that uh, obviously now he's had some success in, in property development, but he was one guy and that was later in my career and he was only a young player. And even when I was coaching that, that Welshie was always out there doing something on his day off, you know, whether he's doing some work with some developers, he was doing in the media, he was um, doing some vocabulary, you know, sort of um, lessons and speaking to, to people that have been in that industry. He was always doing things to, to improve himself. Um, so that was a good example of someone who's, who's used those resources and, uh, and it certainly helped him post-football. Post and do you think that, because I mean, I look at football clubs as clear as you said before. They can be amazing places to work, and 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 be around. And certainly, in my experience, you know, if you wanted a lawyer, a doctor, a painter, a plumber, a builder, you can pretty much find them at the footy club, and <laughs> yep. clearly a podiatrist as well. <laughs> but if you think about the value of actually really being proactive around getting into the networks and and looking at and understanding the way a you know a very credentialed businessman who might be on the board of a football club runs their day-to-day affairs, runs their business, that must be incredibly beneficial. And I, I still don't understand why more players don't use that resource that's at their fingertips while they're playing to help work out what they may or may not want to do. No, there's no doubt it's it's probably underutilised when you look back. I know that some current players do tap in to, to some of the resources. And as you mentioned, we've got some great networks at, at the Essendon Footy Club. And the other thing is you've got people while you're playing they're the ones who they really want to help you. When you stop playing, you know, the the, the 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 footy club just moves on really quickly. You know, there's a new group of players that come in. So if you're ever going to get more help and get access to these people, it's and they certainly help your post-football career, don't get me wrong, but uh, I think it's a lot easier while you're playing um, to get that help. The other thing it shows is that you're motivated. So when you go, go to these people post-career and you've already built, uh, had that relationship, it's certainly beneficial in that regard as well that you've actually tapped in while you're playing, while you've been busy with your career, you know, those resources and those people are more willing to help you post your footy career. And I think there's no doubt that, you know, you become yesterday's news pretty quickly in professional sport. And not only, you know, some people obviously probably prepared to help once you finish, but they've also got a whole crop of new players that are coming through that are probably asking them and doing the same sorts of things, which makes it harder for those that have uh, they've gone before them, I would have thought. And interestingly, when you left footy, you left footy pretty early, 29 years old, which is, you know, these days a lot of players are, are probably hanging on for their last contract and, and maybe yeah. squeezing an extra year or two out of themselves before they, they finish, which in my mind is a bit of a concern because that says to me that they might not really know what's going to happen next. Can you tell me about your decision to get into coaching? Was that a conscious decision that you made as you were getting towards the end of your career or was it more a case of, well, I'm a well-credentialed player, I played for 12 years, I played in a premiership, I'm a pretty articulate, bright guy, I can probably transition relatively easily across to coaching? Not at all. I, I thought when I was playing, I, I didn't think I'd, I would coach. And I think if you speak to a lot of coaches now, they'd probably tell you the same thing. There's a, there's a few players or very few players that 
actually towards the end of their career want to coach. Now, I know there's a few examples that, uh, that go against that, like Sam Mitchell at Hawthorne, uh, a, a good example of a guy who was a couple of years out, you know, had a, was focused on coaching. I had 12 months off, and uh, when I say 12 months off, I ran a podiatry practice in South Melbourne. I had an interest in a hotel, a pub, the Waterside Hotel, uh, and I'd, I'd worked behind the, uh, the bar one day a week to get to know the business and I worked in the podiatry practice four days a week. I did a little bit of um, media work uh, with ABC Radio and it was the best thing I'd, I'd done. And I'd, what do those sorts of experiences teach you? Because I think clearly you didn't let the grass grow under your feet. You got out and had a real crack to, I, I suspect, better yourself, improve yourself and maybe even work out what you're going to do next as opposed to sitting there waiting for an opportunity to come to you. You've gone out and grabbed it. No, exactly right. I, I just wanted to know what it was like to not have football for 12 months. Actually go to a game and watch it just to enjoy it. Every, you know, I'd go and maybe watch a game once a month, go and socialise with some friends on the weekend, travel, go away when I wanted to go away, not, not in October or November, and just do those things that I guess when you're, when you're playing football, it's such a great career, but you're also looking at what are other people doing in there and just to experience that for for 12 months was was really beneficial. Uh, I travelled for, post footy career, I travelled for the first three months, went overseas, went over to Europe to see a few mates, came back, got into the work, jumped behind the bar at the pub, learned a bit about that business. And then I actually missed that involvement that you have around the football club, that, that team preparing every week to get a result. And I actually got a phone call from the uh, Western Bulldogs at that time, Matthew Drain, who was our football manager at Essendon, who who asked me whether I may be interested in coaching, and I, I had to think about that and uh, and uh, applied to be an assistant coach at the at the Bulldogs. Got the got the job, and and uh, and I was into it, and I thoroughly enjoyed the, the coaching. I coached in the AFL for about about eight years. And what what did you think when you walked out of Essendon, uh, and then you walked back into a football club twelve odd months later, a new football club? into a new role, you must have had some apprehension and, and probably been a little bit nervous about how you're going to go as a coach, how they're going to accept you and the message that you were going to teach. I mean, what were the things that sort of ran through your mind? Can you describe how you were feeling as you you started to take your first sort of baby steps into coaching? Well, coaching and playing are two totally different careers and, and you, you learn that pretty quickly once you start coaching. You think, oh, you know, as a, as a player... You think once you've played, you think, "Geez, I, I can be being a coaching. I'll just, you know, it'll be, be quite an easy job, and I'll be able to." But there's so many elements to coach. So the biggest surprise for me was that I was basically starting at ground zero as a coach. Yeah, your footy career helps you because it gives you a player's perspective, and that's when you're a young coach. That's the only way you can approach it. Like, how are they thinking? What would I want to, the feedback? How could I help this person? And and and. Uh, uh, having a look from that playing perspective as well. But, um, yeah, he developed a lot of the skills as coaching on the run and a lot of players now prepare for coaching two or three years out, but I certainly wasn't one of those guys because I hadn't – coaching wasn't on my radar. And when you said you had decided that you missed the, if you like, the cut and thrust of being involved in a football club, do you think that was also part of the fact that you maybe weren't necessarily ready to completely leave football behind because you had, you had 12 months out – and it sort of drew you back. And, and do you think that that also might be a an issue for footballers now who are probably spending more time at football clubs while they're playing as compared to when you were playing and that they actually are not going to get that time and have that wherewithal to actually get out there and do some of the things that you did 
before you actually finished? I don't think it drew me back in in that way. I think you can you can leap from playing to coaching really quickly without having. I think you know, I'd always encourage, and I know a lot of coaches have done this, having that twelve months off. I personally missed even doing the media. You're calling a game, whether the team win, loses, or draws, you go home with that same feeling. And, and perhaps it's more the feeling of that sport gives you that you, that you miss. Yeah, that, that may draw you back. Like it's, I know it's been described, I've heard it described, it's like life on the roller coaster. You know, you have the highs and the lows, the winning, the losing, the injuries within the season, whereas life tends to be a bit more on the merry-go-round away from sport where the, the emotions aren't as high or low, but there's, there's not, not the peaks and troughs as well, well you know, that the, the, the professional you, sport has. It's funny you say that because... Uh, ben Darwin, uh, a gentleman that's been interviewed on this podcast series, uh, former Wallaby rugby player, immensely successful, and he mentioned that when he transitioned to life after sport, there was nobody there patting him on the back when he finished his tax return or, <laughs> or when he got a new client in the yeah. business he's on. And so I imagine that must be a hell of a transition just to go from the adulation and the fact that you're being judged week to week as to whether you perform well or not. We know in businesses yeah. it's often very, very difficult to, to get an understanding of how you're travelling because you just, you know, you head down, bum up on the grind. Mm. That must be very difficult to cope with. Yeah, well, there's, there's, that's, that's a really good point. There's no shortage of feedback when you're, when you're playing footy. You know, you've got an assistant coach, a coach, you've got the media, you've got your family, you've got your friends. Everyone knows pretty much how, you, how you've gone on the weekend. So there's that instant feedback. And... In, in some ways, that drives you as well because you're always getting you're always getting that feedback, so you always know where you sit. But you know, running your own business or no, you, you certainly don't get that. And now, I mean, the scrutiny. I'm, I'm talking when I played the scrutiny now on players, you know, with social media and and that they're getting. It's certainly it, it's tough, but I, I I got no doubt getting that feedback and that there's almost that fear of failure a little bit as well that drives certain athletes. And I mean, how have you transitioned from that mindset of that, what I call the elite high-performance mindset of an AFL football club, both as a player and a coach, to running Wellman Finance? I'm assuming you're not waiting for a client to come and pat you on the back. You're not looking in the mirror, we're about to run out, giving yourself a rev up. It is pretty, you know, business off the ground is actually pretty mundane, really, isn't it? It's just a lot of hard grind. Yeah, it's a hard grind. And I mean, for me, when I started the business, though, that was the exciting thing, like to see this is where I want to get to. This is where I am now. As you said, the phone's not going to ring. And I actually, you know, my footy career really, in terms of the people that you get to meet, and you go through, I actually wrote a list of names of the people that I knew and the networks and the associated people that I have. And uh, I just came up with a list. And now if I didn't play football, just starting that network and those people, you know, I wouldn't have had 10% of those people. And that was a really good starting point to say, to get on the phone, go out and see people, have a coffee and say, this is what I'm doing. Um, so if you ever, ever need this uh, X, Y and Z, please put me front of mind. And that was the way I started, you know, getting one client, two clients, three clients. But it was initially when you look, when I look back on it now and write these people, a lot of those people come from my football connections, whether they're guys that I played with, whether they're coaches who have coached me, whether they're coterie members that have sponsored the club, my player sponsors, you know, it's a huge network. And I probably didn't utilise that earlier in my career, but I, I tapped into it a little bit later when I set up my own business. But isn't it surprising that, and look, we do that in the finance game that I'm in, sit down with younger advisors and just say, write out a list of all the people that you know. And it's amazing 
two things happen. Firstly, it's amazing how many people you can actually put on that list. And then you can start joining dots to actually work out who's connected to who. That's right. And in the, yeah. in the, in the next minute you know you've actually got a really strong group of people that you can A, talk to, you can bounce ideas off, you can use them as mentors if you need to. But more importantly, they're out there looking for you and they're out there watching your back because they know you, they like you, and they're prepared to help you where they can. Yeah. Yeah, some awesome people out there. And I don't know man- too many people who don't want to help someone, particularly when they're starting a business. You know, I had some great help. I, I had some help from Ray Horsborough, who's uh, he was the chairman of Toll at that at that time, and I set up an advisory board, and uh, he actually came on that that advisory board, and he was fantastic. You know, a busy guy, but someone who gave up his time to help me start my business. Uh, you know, and I had an ex teammate Mark Bolton on that advisory board. I had uh, Nigel Credlin, who who you'd work with, Ed. Yep. Good man, um, Nudge. Who David Evans put me on to another ex-president of the of Essendon Footy Club. Uh, and I also had a guy called Dino Strano who was heavily involved at Essendon through uh, sponsoring at, at the Winslow Construction. So there's four people that I all got to start up and advise me on my business that I all met in some way, shape or form directly through football or through a connection through football. And the amazing thing from that is, is that the next point of that sort of the joining the dots is the fact that they could pick up the phone to pretty much anybody and say, can you see Sean, he needs a hand here, or would you mind having a conversation with him because he wants to talk to you about X? And that the ability to open up those networks so one person can actually open up all sorts of different networks. And I think one of the messages that's coming through loud and clear in this conversation is that you actually need to be really proactive, get off your backside and leverage your position in a football club while you're there to ensure that you can get a bit of a head start on the rest of the pack when it comes to what you're going to do when you finish. Absolutely. I mean... And, and that's something, again, where as a player you have to step outside and take the blinkers off and actually try and have a bit more perspective. I know some of the Essendon guys now, I mean, I still speak to some of the players um, that I've coached and uh, I think some of those guys are getting better at doing that, spending their day off, you know, where they're, they're sitting in a business and learning about the business. And those guys have got a good idea of what they want to go into post-football. I think... It's a massive advantage if you know what you want to do before you retire and you're not working it out 12 months, three years, five years later. And I think I would imagine without naming any names, you'd have plenty of people that you've either played with or you've coached who have come to the end and they've had that old crikey moment where they've actually, you know, time gets away from us so quickly, whether it's playing sport, whether it's raising children and a family, you blink and 10 years just disappears before your eyes. And I think one of the challenges that professional sports people face now is that, you know, things do move very quickly and you don't want to be in a situation where you are, you have finished and then you're going, well, what am I going to do? Because that tends to lend itself to potentially financial stress, but it also lends itself to potentially doing things that you have to do, not that you want to do, purely because out of necessity, you've got to feed the family, you've got to pay the mortgage, all those sorts of things. And that to my mind, is just something that keeps coming through clearer and clearer in these conversations, is that you've got to get yourself organised early and start be well before you finish. Yeah, it's, that's a good point. I mean, it's a luxury to have choices where, you, you, you know, if you do finish your career, you don't have to coach. You don't have to go into the media. Um, you can make a really good decision based on, you know, you've got, you've got the football side where you can, you can perhaps explore those avenues that in the footy industry, but you've also worked on developing yourself in a, in a totally different industry too. And that's, you, get, you still get the benefits because footy teaches you a lot of lessons in terms of being able to work in a team that 
time management. I mean, if you're late to training, you get fined. So you, you work out pretty quickly to have a couple of alarm clocks going. Uh, not, <laughs> not, and the excuses run out pretty quickly if you're late. You know, working in a team, you just don't survive in a good footy club if, you, if you're selfish and you just do your own thing and you go against the, the team values as well. And that's really valuable in business. And the other thing is you're not successful unless you help other people develop as well. If you just worry about yourself... Uh, and don't help the people around you, well, you're not going to develop a team that's likely to be successful and get to the top of the tree. And that structure is an interesting point because every sports person I've spoken to on this podcast says the same thing, that they were essentially told where to be, when to be there, what to wear, who to talk with, what to eat, when to go to bed. And that structure obviously clearly helps footballers and other professional sports people perform in that team environment. But do you think that there's a potential for that to actually be detrimental to their development off the field? Because suddenly you're not told when to come to work at Wellman Finance. You get up and you go to work because you're motivated. But not everybody's like that. And people will say, well, I've got nothing on today. I'm going to stay in bed. I'm just going to sit around watching a movie or playing PlayStation or whatever they do just to while away the time. Because I think the thing that concerns me is that professional sports people are so structured these days that it doesn't allow them any sort of freedom to go out and just do other things and experience other things. Yeah, but I would I'd sort of say the successful ones in footy are, are probably no different, Ed, to the ones that you deal with in business and that they're self-driven. Yeah. Uh, you know, they don't need someone to, to tell them they got to do this, they got to do that. They generally, you know, are self-driven and they just want to get better and they want to improve. So, and those same people, when I look, have been successful in footy. They've done pretty well outside of footy as well um, because they've taken... Yeah, that drive is still there in other areas of their life as well, and it's driving whatever they're doing now. Can you tell me about and describe your, sort of your view of the notion that clubs have a duty of care to develop footballers off the field as well as on? I mean, in your role as a director of an AFL football club, I mean, what, what do you think about that notion of having to develop the full person, not just the footballer? It's a, it's, that's a tough question, and uh, I know we've spoken about this before, but what you've got the player themselves you've got the football club you've got the players always got a manager that's quite heavily involved in their life and you've got the AFL players association so in terms of where does the responsibility lie with a player who comes into the game and leaves the game and and what their position is I I think firstly it's the player themselves I mean there's you are given a lot of advice and resources now but where the, the lines perhaps may get a little bit blurry is is the club, how much responsibility is the club, the player manager and the players association PA as well. And then the other the other side of it is is the player fully disclosing what's happening in their life to those, you know, those three parties as well. So it's a big one for me. And I think the game's got a responsibility that when players enter the game they have a ten or twelve year career, that one, hopefully financially they're set up, but also um, their transition out of footy is going to be smooth. One, because they're financially set up, but two, they've got some education and that around them, some grounding where they can can go into another career as well. And uh, I, I think it's not good enough to say it's just the player. I think the, the club's certainly got a responsibility. I think player managers have got a responsibility. And I, and I, and I think the AFLPA have got a responsibility as well. And I think don't get me wrong, I think all, all three that make a really strong effort and that, and then some, but some players are still getting through the cracks. So I, I think as a game and as a club, I'm looking and say, well, how do we stop this? 
and how do how do we stop that? You know, a player may come out of the game and and been playing for ten years and hasn't got two bob to rub together. What could we have done differently? When could we have maybe intervened and, and had a better outcome? And look, it's interesting because I mean, I, I really appreciate what you've said about the responsibility. And you get back to what you said a few minutes ago about the drive of successful players on and off the field. If successful people in business, they're driven, they're motivated, they just get on with it. And with those sort of four layers of responsibility, the player, the club, the players' association and the manager, that I think sometimes players almost use that as a bit of a crutch as to fall back on to maybe abrogate responsibility to others. So, oh, well, look, they didn't help me or the club wasn't didn't do this for me or my manager didn't help me find another job or whatever it might be. And I, I feel that there is actually one thing that happens in your life and that's you've got to take responsibility for what you do. And the greatest lesson I've learnt from Ron Barassi, if it is to be, it's up to me. Yep. And I think one of the things that is coming through loud and clear here, Sean, too, is the fact that there are all sorts of resources around players now, but the bottom line is if they're the ones that have to leverage those resources in order to to get a start on the next thing that they're going to do in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the education uh, around players is, is, is really strong now. So there's no doubt the player themselves is the number one and they've got to take, take responsibility. But it's not something you just take for granted that just throw some education programs around a player and the players will be fine and they'll get on. I think you've actually got to manage it. And what I'm saying is, as a club, the manager or the AFLPA, you actually have to be able to manage it and also look back retrospectively on some players that may have got through and say, you know, perhaps, and I'm sure we do do that, but how did they get through the cracks and what could have we done differently? So we're always trying to minimise, I guess, that impact that, you know, where players probably haven't managed things as well as they could have. And I mean, I think that's this whole joint responsibility thing's fine. But as you mentioned, if the players want to get, they've got to get off their backsides and actually do it. I mean, one of the things that always fascinates me about professional sport now is the fact that there is kind of two camps. One camp, which I think is really what I call the David Parkin camp, and one that you're clearly a supporter of, which is, you know, you need to have some balance outside of sport, even if you've only got a day, a day and a half per week go and do something else outside of your, your profession. But then there's there's also this camp that says it's got to be 110% sport. It can't be anything else. You can't, you know, if you've got your day off, you should be in getting a massage, you should be doing more skills, you should be doing weights, whatever it is. I mean, what do you think about the notion of the fact that you've got to be 110% focused on your sport all the time? Because surely, in your experience, there must be players you've either played with or coached that are actually doing so much, they're actually doing themselves a disservice. They're not actually getting better. They might be plateauing or even getting worse because they're just putting so much into it. They're not they're not giving themselves a chance to have a mental break. Well, I think it helps your footy. So I think if you look at it, there's two ways you can look at it. You can look at it and say it's taking your time. But like we mentioned before, if you actually sell it and say it actually helps your performance to be able to focus on, and here's a few examples of, of people and what they've done, I think it can be beneficial then because – the physical training, there's only a certain amount of time you can train during the week, uh, particularly when you're playing games. And that's, as I understand it now, it's pretty much maintenance during the week. Yeah, they do do uh, a lot of training, and but a lot of that is recovery. I just look at my personal experience with footy and I look at some of the guys that I've played with and I've got no doubt that if you can uh, – and there's the odd player that can be a professional footballer and just do football all the time, 24-7, but I don't know many people – where firstly it wouldn't do their heads in 
Uh, and secondly, they're going to have they're going to be injured. They're going to have you know loss of form. And getting out and doing something else, and not just valuing yourself as a footballer, because if you're you're thinking, I'm an AFL footballer, that's all I'm good at, that's all I do. When things aren't going great, sometimes you won't have a, a great outlook on you, or you know your self worth can can deteriorate pretty quickly. But if you're actually football's just a part of who you are, and there's these other parts of your life, and that that includes you know you socialising with your, with your friends, friends away from football your family, but also having a career or an education uh, where you're focusing on other things uh, and you're looking ahead a little bit. When I look at this whole identity piece, it's, it's becoming a real concern. The fact that you've clearly transitioned to from Sean Wilmot, the footballer, to Sean Wilmot, the coach, to Sean Wilmot, the businessman, pretty seamlessly. It certainly seems from the outside looking in. I know you mentioned a few things that bumps along the way, but the thing that concerns me is this whole issue of the identity of the footballer and the adulation that they they have to cope with when things are going well, the, the obviously the rubbish that they have to cope with when things aren't going that well, especially from a social media point of view. I mean, when you're looking at AFL footballers now, do you worry that they are just really one-dimensional and that they need to make sure that there is a another part of their lives which they can then help transition out of the game? Because... You don't want to sort of the old washed up person that you've probably met in your time in the game where they're 50 or they're 60 and they're still living as if they were 25 playing game of footy. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think, look, I don't think it's ever seamless. I think, you know, you do go through through some bumps regardless of how well you're prepared to, trans, to you know, that transition. I mean, I started Wellman Finance five years ago and I love what I do, but basically I started when I was 39. So I went through a bit of a journey to get to to start up my business. Where so I've, that's really ten years since yeah, you left the game. That's right. Where I've coached and I've done other things that have definitely helped my business, and I've obviously worked in podiatry as well. But it's it's never seamless to get to where you want to want to get to. But those skills along the way, and those experiences certainly will help you. And uh, sorry, I forgot the other question. I was going to say, <laughs> we're going to talk about the transferability of your skills because clearly. You've got skills that you had when you were playing through, you know, high performance mindset, structure, um, teamwork, all those sorts of things. Then you flip that on its head, and you're a coach. And then you've got it. You're obviously looking at a group of players, not just yourself. And then you move into a business side of things, and you're all, you're looking after other people. You're running the business. You've you've got to pay people every week. You've got to look after your clients. So, what are the things that you've learnt from a footy point of view? that's really helped you move into business outside of what I call the teamwork thing because that's pretty one-dimensional but there's other things that you must have picked up along the way whether it's through sharing information with mentors what are some of the things that you picked up outside of there yeah in terms of the skills in footy that have helped you in yeah. in, in, in business well I think the team thing is is a, is a big thing and uh, the goal setting and setting yourself like a you know, in business or in footy, it always, I know always at the start of the year, I'd always have these personal goals and team goals and then you'd sort of go after them. I do the same thing in business now in terms of, it's not too complicated, but I look at what I've just done the last 12 months. I look at, okay, how I want to grow and be better over the next 12 months and then I break it down to the things that I have to do to get there. And then I, I make sure that I put in the work and get the people around me to help me to get there and uh, that, that's what motivates me. It's not the day-to-day things, it's really about the end goal and where I want to get to. 
and then I'll review them. Basically, I'll work my backside off for 12 months. I'll look back and I'll uh, if I've ticked those off and then I'll, I'll go again. And that seems to me, there's actually quite a good connection between the fact that you're setting your own goals, whereas before you were getting feedback from coaches, from players when you were coaching about how you were going. And you've just used that sort of analogy to put yourself into a, a goal-setting sort of mindset. You don't need anybody else other than yourself to be able to pick up and go, hmm, I'm actually on track or I'm a bit behind. Because I think one of the things that I try to instill in my children is that if you want to achieve something, write the goal down and then work back from there as to how you might go about doing it. A great friend of mine from school wanted to be a world champion sailor. So we set the goal. Three or four years later, he became a world champion sailor. He then transitioned into Sailing America's Cup boats. Always wanted to do that, set the goal. Five years later, did that. And it, it's no coincidence that he's been really successful in life because he's worked out a goal, he's worked out how he's going to get there, and then he's checked off along the way to make sure that he's on track. If he's not on track, he's gone and found somebody who can get on track. And I, I guess that's very similar to what you're doing right now. Yeah, that's. I mean, the guys that I played with, and even and I probably learnt this more in coaching that some of the guys I coached and realised, yeah, you sit back and go, why is this guy such a good good footballer? You know, why? And generally, when you're playing football or in business or whatever, you know what needs to be done. Like, there's generally, you know, in terms of getting more clients or expanding your business or in footy, you know, taking that next step, getting fitter, stronger working on certain areas of the game. Most people know what those areas are, but actually just going out there and actually taking that step and being prepared to do the work. I mean, you, you know it, Ed, in, these, in finance, you go to a conference and there's a motivational speaker and then there's someone saying you have what they did. They're all saying the same thing in a different way and people write down, oh, I've got to do this, got to do that, got to do that. And the next year they'll go to the same conference and they'll hear the same messages in a different way from someone else and they'll write it down. Yep. At the end of the day, it's like, if you're not doing it, why aren't you doing it? And then it's taking that plunge and actually just putting in the hard work and actually making sure you actually do the work. And that's that's what I've, I've seen in, in footy is, uh, particularly in a coaching view, is you, you just sit back and observe certain players and how they go about things and the day-to-day work to get themselves better and improve. And they just do it every day until they, you look back 12 months later and you see, God, how, how much has this guy improved? And they just, they're just so self-motivated to, to get better. And they may have started with less skills than some other guys around them and they've developed themselves into, into great, you know, great players. And I remember coaching, like, like Kyle Hooker, for example, at Essendon, and he was as raw as you know, any player that I'd almost seen. And he had a lot of sort of sceptics, I'd, I'd stay out there, in terms of his abilities and stuff. But then his work ethic and work rate um, when I came to the club, I was like, whoa, this guy's pretty serious. To the point where, you know, he, he sort of just through through hard work and got himself into to be an All-Australian, best and fairest, you know, developed himself into a, in a top-line player. And there's no doubt at that time he would have had, you know, probably a dozen of guys around a similar age, probably with more natural ability, that haven't had half the careers that, that Kale's had. And that probably leads into this issue I like to talk about, about vulnerability. And there's no more vulnerable position for a player to be in than when they're finished or when they think they're about to finish because generally speaking, you don't make the decision yourself. Most professional sports people are told their career's over. They don't do it by choice. And so from that perspective, can you describe some of the things 
experiences you've had in your sporting career where you've actually felt vulnerable. It might be, you know, you're injured and you're not quite sure whether you're going to be able to get back. It might be coaching, you're not quite sure whether you've got what it takes. I mean, who are the... Th- can you give me an example of maybe one or two things where you felt like that? But more importantly, can you talk about, you know, who you turned to and the types of advice that you got to help sort of turn you around and get you back on the, sort of the path again? Yeah. So during my, my AFL career, I felt most vulnerable at the start of my career and at the end of my career. So starting out, am I going to make it? And uh, you don't really know what needs to be done in terms of preparing yourself. You take a while to work that out. Once you get over those hurdles and you get a bit of confidence and you know you can play at that level, there's five or six years or, you know, when you're at sort of the peak of your career, you're getting stronger, fitter, you know, from that 21, 22 to, you know, 28. And then you get to the point where things start to go down a little bit. The body starts to break up. Yeah, and you start to question whether you can play at, at that level again. So you start off, can I get to the level? And then at, towards the end, it's like, can I maintain that level? Or, you know, where you're, you're not recovering quite as well. And that's, you, you, you're quite vulnerable there. And that's something I remembered in coaching because often when you're coaching older players who are 29, 30, you're making the assumption that, oh, they're, they're fine, they'll get over it, bang. But that's when you can start to feel vulnerable a little bit. You know, you're placing the team's probably not as secure as what it was. You're not recovering as well from games. You might have just lost a little bit of bit of your edge. That's when you can, I think, you can be a little bit vulnerable as a player. Well, that's that's when I was personally. And I mean, that vulnerability must be really disconcerting. And do you think is it about building people's confidence up from a coaching point of view, just to say everything's fine, you're actually going well? You might even have to throw a bit of mayo on the story just to make them feel a bit better about themselves. Because I mean, in today's football, what is it? Average career is four seasons. You might play, what, 40 or 50 games on average. And there's a lot, that's a fair chunk of your life taken to one pursuit. But it is actually a really tenuous career, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think it's it's not telling players fibs at all. It's just being honest, but it's making sure you're spending a lot of time, not just with the younger players, but you're taking your time out to talk to those those older players as well, not making assumptions that, oh, they'll be right, they'll, they'll push through it. That you're making sure you're having those having those conversations as well, yeah. And I, and I think today, like I, I mean, I see the the benefits that you can get in AFL football, but the, the the scrutiny now is so much greater than it was when uh, when I was playing as well. I think that's even more important to have those conversations in terms of their confidence and that to realign them and, and get them back on a path, but also to help them and give them some mechanisms to they are not playing well or they're a young player trying to establish themselves, these are the things, you know, that, that, that I think will help you, need to do, put some plans in place. But at the end of the day, they've got the ones that got to do the work. And what about, I mean, you'd mentioned about talking to older players from a coaching point of view. What about your experiences when you were coming through the system and you were probably at your most vulnerable at the start? I mean, did you lean on older players that had been there, done that? I mean, is it the sort of environment where you can actually almost be comfortable in your vulnerability with your teammates and with your peers or is it something that footballers tend to sort of keep to themselves for fear of wanting to be seen as either not good enough to seem to being a bit weak in the mind I mean did you have conversations with older players about a your worries or b how you should go about getting a kick on the weekend no I didn't to be honest not really do they do it now I'm not too sure but 
you certainly get some uh, you get some advice, but when you're young, you know, you think you know it all, you know, and you you just learn through experience. I mean, if you if you turn the clock back on your career when you're a younger player, and you, you learn a few of those lessons a bit earlier on in terms of your training habits and preparing yourself, you would have been a much better player a lot quicker. But some people just take more time than others to to work it out. But generally, no, there was there was always people who would help you to a point. But players. Yeah, there's, there's that twofold thing where you're so competitive to get a place in the team and also helping other players around you as well. And I think now, I, I certainly think now, when you look back on, on really good clubs and players, the older players leave a legacy where they've passed some stuff on to the younger players, and I think that's a, that's a great footy club. If you look at maybe Geelong would be a good example with you know, those great teams that they had, there's no doubt that... Uh, you know, I think the guys like Scarlett and Enright have passed on some really good lessons to some younger players like you know, Selwood and that who, who are still playing now. The lessons that you've you've learned over the years, with your coaching hat on, do you ever have any conversations with players that you were coaching where they've come to you and said, "Look, I need to miss a session or two because I'm actually thinking about what I'm going to do after sport." And how do you think you'd cope with that, or coaches that you've been involved with would cope with that if a player came to them and said, "Look." I can't beat six o'clock training tomorrow because I'm studying for an exam or I've got some work experience. How do you think clubs would cope these days with yeah, that sort I know, of thing? Yeah, I know at Essendon it happens. I know some guys who had an exam and they, their training gets put back four or five hours. So it still does happen, you know, where the, the football club will make, will take steps to be a little bit flexible. You know, the David, no doubt, maybe not as much as the David Parkin days where I think he wanted every player on the list to make sure they've got a career. But there's certainly some flexibility, and I think most clubs are pretty good like that. Not weekly would they be flexible, but you know, one-offs. Yeah, I don't think clubs would have an issue with it. And how would you have coped with it if a player came to you and said, "Hey, coach, you know how you told me I've got to be at uh, recovery at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm not going to be there." Is it an individual sort of thing, or and is there sort of some players you're comfortable to let go, other players you might not be because you know one's going to do the right thing, whereas one might not. Um, perhaps. <laughs> and, does self, um, and does self-interest come into it? Because uh, another individual that's been on this podcast who was also coached said that just depends completely on whether I think that's going to help the team or not and whether it's going to help me or not. And if it doesn't help me, I'm going to say no. Yeah, yeah. Well, nothing like self-interest to motivate you. Yeah, that's right, Wayne. No, I think, uh, well, if I'm missing a 6am recovery session, I think, geez. I'm not sure if you're doing an exam at 6 a.m. in the morning, but um, I mean, there's there's always flexibility. I think it comes down to trust, doesn't it? I mean, if you got you know, if you trust the player, and I guess if you're preaching that you know you have to have a balance in your life, you've got to be able to live it as well and, and, and allow that flexibility at times. Do you reckon with all the scrutiny that goes on with footballers now, and I'm talking specifically about AFL, that there will be some there that it is actually a job? and they're not actually in love with the game like they might have been when they were growing up. Because I've spoken with an individual who I mentor and there's been conversations around the fact that it, it can be a grind. It can be just like the job that you and I do every day. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the game that you loved as an 11, 12-year-old, if you can, it, it, definitely, it definitely does test that. I mean, it, it just does because you're... You're training, you're playing, you're preparing, and there's times when there's there's no doubt it be, that that becomes tough and it's tested. And I think if you can create an environment and you can't get away from the fact that football's still got to be fun, like 
and in any sport, if you can make the environment fun, uh, I think you're almost getting a competitive advantage sometimes. If you look around the AFL and you're saying, well, you're doing the work, you're doing training, you're preparing the team, but you actually love getting to the club. That's a massive tick. And I know when I played at Essen, I mean, Sheed's had a lot of strengths, but one of his strengths was when you played footy at Essendon, it was a fun environment. Like, he, you actually... I mean, I loved playing. And what was the what were the sort of things that made them fun? Because you mentioned before that you know you're not going to win every week and you're not going yeah. to play well every week. Yeah. But and clearly, when you guys were playing in the late nineties, early two thousands, you were winning a fair bit, and that would have made it fun. But I mean, what are the sorts of things that Kevin would have done to to make things enjoyable? Oh, well, he, well he, he could he could crack a joke. He, he'd take the Mickey out of the players. We could take the Mickey out of the coach in the right way and he'd take it the right way. The training and the people that he put around him, the fact, having fun, when you're seeing yourself come into a football club with good people around you who are helping you and you're doing the work and you're seeing yourself get better, it's a massive motivator and that's fun to say that, man, I'm, I'm doing all this training and I'm actually improving and I'm getting better at a game that I love. Now that's fun. The fact that we won a lot of games during that, that time definitely helps and Sheed was good enough to recruit a lot of a bunch of guys who were, were good footballers, but they were good fun to be around as well, and not to take yourself too seriously at times as well. And that goes beyond the playing group. You know, we'd have some medical staff that had been there 25, 30 years. Our physio staff, people around the club. So you felt like you were a part of something bigger than just the team, and that was um, that was really important. I think, but there's there's no times where footy just gives you the irrits, you know. It just, it's just like anything. You, you, you're trying so hard and you want to be successful all the time. But as we said before, you, you, you're playing on some great players. Sometimes they're going to kick your butt, you know. And, and uh, you're playing against some great teams. And, you know, you go into state and you get your, your butt kicked uh, and you've got to fly back and, and regroup and stuff. That really tests, tests your medal, that's no doubt. But... Again, if you can have, we spoke about having other things in your life and that as well, and not just putting your, all your eggs in the footy basket, that can certainly help footy become more fun as well. So that when you get back into the club, you haven't been stewing on things as much and you can sort of, you know, get in there, train and, and, and prepare for the, next, for the next opponent. We're going to wrap things up fairly shortly and we've really loved having this conversation. But from a football director's point of view, are you concerned at all about the fact that football is becoming such a profession? And let's face it, it is a full-time job now for all of the players that play in the AFL system, that there isn't the time that they actually need to go out there and, and experience other things in life to get themselves prepared for life after football? I don't think we're there. I think there's a tipping point. There's no doubt about that. There's a tipping point. And the big thing is the money in the game now is at a point where, you know, some players are earning a million bucks a year. Now, a lot of people say, well, we, we have to have them here from 8 o'clock to 6 o'clock because this is what we're paying them. But having, having people at the club for that amount of time doesn't help performance. And that's what each club has to work out. And sometimes I've got no doubt there's a tipping point where less actually becomes more. Because I would have, exactly, because I mean, I, you know, occasionally, for whatever reason, people will just take a sickie. In a normal job, you might wake up on a Thursday and go, I just need a day off. They don't exist in footy. They don't, do they? No. And that, to my mind, that must be, it must be a pretty tough thing to get your head around because 
I guess there'd be nothing worse than turning up to training when you're not feeling 100% or you're just a bit down in the dumps. Obviously, that can help boost you up when you're around your friends and the guys that you're playing with every week. But it also must be a bit of a concern that it's just so much footy. And you look at all the football shows every night, you know, it's wall-to-wall footy, every channel, pay TV, free-to-air. There's no rest from football. And that, to me, is someone who's got a real passion for helping players Mm. transition to life after sport just is a massive concern. That's right. And there's, look, there's guys in footy that, you know, 24-7 is not enough. Yeah. But I don't think there's many of those guys. I think there's a lot of guys who love footy. They watch a game on TV, maybe maybe one game, watch the odd footy show. And then there's the others that want to totally switch off. So, so the footy program has to cater for all of those players to be successful. And, and as I said before, I think you've got to get the balance right between the training, preparing for games versus doing, being able to give that time where they can actually do some other things in their life which is going to complement their footy as well. And I think and having that environment where it's fun to be around as well, and that's not an easy thing to do uh, to actually get that balance right. And occasionally you're going to throw the balance way out of whack. But I think you've got to have a really good feel for the playing group what they need, but also being able to provide those opportunities. And I hope that footy doesn't get to the point where it's just there's so much commitment that you actually can't afford to do anything or another life. When I say another life, you can't, you know, put your energies into into something maybe half a day a week or a day a week where you can improve yourself. With respect to the spread of the people that you've been involved in with footy, you've got people and players that have been educated at private schools and you've got players that have left school at 14 or 15 with very little education and with not having the fortune of parents like yourself who were motivated and actually gave you a bit of a kick up the bum to say, Sean, you've got to go out there and get a, you know, go and get a university degree, have something to fall back on. That must be quite a challenge for football as an industry because it's such a broad church of players that are coming into the game that not everybody is going to be motivated to get off their backsides to help themselves post-football while they're playing. And not everyone's going to be able to go into the media. Not everyone's going to be able to coach. And, you know, a year out of the game and they're going to be back doing probably what they were doing if they weren't playing football. It might be just a very mundane job that they're thinking, where did my time in football go and why haven't I done something better? The diversity is the greatest thing about footy. Like, you know, in terms, even just going to a game, but playing in the AFL, you do come, there's similar, different backgrounds. And that's probably one of the things I loved about playing footy, like guys coming from different states, you know, different backgrounds. You're right, different educations. But I don't, I I don't think that's really, when you, when you look at it, when I look sort of look back, there's it, it doesn't really matter. Like some, some people, if they're motivated, they've tapped into the, some of the resources around the footy club, and that where they've started doesn't necessarily mean where you finish. Same when guys get drafted. Some guys get drafted like James Heard at pick seventy nine and become Brownlow medalists and that. I think it's no different sometimes off the field. You know that sometimes people utilise some some certain opportunities. There's ones that might have come with a really good education background that don't. So, you know, where you finish doesn't necessarily um, depend on where you started. Listeners, that's really, really good advice. Where you start has got no correlation to where you might end up. One question, Sean, to finish things off. If you look back over your career to date 
in sport and transitioning out of sport, what are the three things you'd tell your 20-year-old self that you've learnt now that you didn't know back then? Oh, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. I'd, I'd probably say, you know, listen more to some of the, the, the older guys around the team because some of the stuff they told me when I was 20, the penny didn't drop probably until I was 22, 23. That's probably the first thing. Um, the second thing, and I think I did this reasonably well, is that you know, pu- putting things in perspective and having a good balance is really important. And and and, um, and I wouldn't change too much with that. I think um, you know I was pretty fortunate that uh, football can be pretty stressful, high pressure environment at times. But I generally felt like I coped with that pretty well. And when I look back on it now, I think it's because I had some other things to focus on as well, um, which which definitely helped me. Uh, the third thing would be, I think mentor, someone just to be able to talk to in a football sense, that's, you know, maybe, um, but also off field having a, someone a mentor in terms of a career, you know, almost like a career guidance counsellor if you like. And I probably didn't find those people until later in my career. But if I sort of, and so, so I relied on my family teammates and coaches for that but to have some a couple of people away from the football club where you know they can sort of see the forest from the trees if you like and have a different perspective I think that's really important as well. Sean Wellman thanks very much. Welcome thanks Ed. Hey everyone thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'd love to know what you think so please email me at edward underscore camp at bigpond.com if you'd like to share your thoughts, suggestions or recommendations with me. And if you happen to know a retired professional athlete who might like to share their story, please contact me as I'd love to speak with them. And if you do like what you hear, please subscribe to the Wide Open Road podcast and share this podcast with your friends. And remember, our next episode will be released in two weeks' time. Until then, all the best.